RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. So, in every walk of society, friendly societies were operating and seemed to be a trusted way of delivering welfare-type benefits in the way that we recognise them today, and healthcare benefits long before the NHS came into operation. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Martin Shaw, and we're going to discuss friendly societies. Martin started his career with Bradford and Bingley Building Society, but in 2002 he moved across to the FSA, which was the incarnation at that time of the regulator for the financial services industry. And from there, he moved to the Association of British Insurers, the ABI, where he was the director for raising standards. And then in 2006, Martin became the general secretary of the Association of Friendly Societies. And following a merger in 2010, he became the chief executive of the Association of Financial Mutuals. Although he stepped down from that role in April of this year, he remains the association's head of policy. As such, there is no one better to discuss the role past and present of friendly societies, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. So what is a friendly society? Because many people will probably have heard of the name, but have no idea what a friendly society actually is. Well, a a friendly society, in essence, is a group of people that come together to share a solved problem. And in insurance, that typically means um, making contributions to a pot and where the pot is maintained for the benefit of the members and the organisation is established and continues to function in the best interest of its members. We're going to look shortly at the the role of um, friendly societies in the modern world, but let's go back to the history first of all, because I think that will help us to, to understand kind of how friendly societies developed and, and therefore will introduce us to the role that they play in, in, the, in, the, in the modern world. So how did it all begin? And I suppose kind of, you know, one particular question I have in mind is what, why were they called friendly societies? This just seems very, just seems very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, yeah, well, yes, it's, it's a very kind of Victorian term for describing a group of uh, people selling insurance. Uh, but actually, it predates Victorians anyway. Um, in fact, if you want the potted history lesson, um, the first recognised form of organisation working as a former friendly society can be traced back to the year 203, um, back to the Roman Empire, and indeed back to the country which is now known as Algeria, where Roman centurions, each time they were paid, put a contribution into a pot. And then if one of the um, the club was subsequently injured or ill, uh, they would receive a payment from the pot to, um, to cover them whilst their wages were not being paid. Um, and that was exactly the same principle that we then see 
picking up in the UK. Um, the earliest known friendly society, which is still on the FCA register, is the United Sea Box of Bones, which was formed, I think, around 1630. So 17th century then became um, the late 18th and early 19th century. And of course, through that time, the UK saw uh, rapid industrialization. And that led to um, people moving into the towns, looking to find some form of communal activity. Um, so French society started to crop up very much with that form of a kind of social club or a way of meeting other people. Um, they added to um, the experience by um, offering insurance-type products. So as far as I can gather, the term friendly in the name of friendly society was very much around the character uh, of the business. Um, and we see that today still in organisations that have a fraternal element to the organization uh, where they still run social clubs and a range of benefits to support customers um, outside of their insurance payments. So uh, you, you mentioned there that kind of friendly societies were partly developed in response to people going to the cities. Um, but kind of some of the societies which are still in existence have names like uh, the, the Foresters Friendly Society and Shepherds friendly, which are very sort of bucolic and rural as well. So, is it fair to say that it, you know, but basically, it was any group that wanted to come together to form a, a, a sort of a, a, a form of self protection that they could do it. And a friendly society was a very flexible way of achieving that, no matter what group they were. And I think, you know, there's also a bus employees friendly society as well. So. You know, is, is that representative of the sort of groups that, that would create friendly societies? Uh, precisely. The names give a clue as to um, the common bond that rests between the members. And, um, you know, Shepherds gives you a clear indication that um, they were working in the rural community outside of the, um, the rapid growth in urbanisation. Uh, but then you also had a range of others working in, often alongside trade unions, uh, or indeed often leading to the formation of trade unions to offer broader worker support in that time of early industrialization. Um, and if you take many of our member organizations, they have a very close bond between them and the industry, probably. The best example of that is the Metropolitan Police Friendly Society. Um, so, so that bond was created um, not just by role. Uh, for example, um, some of the names that you might have seen in the past would have been the, the Sons of Temperance Friendly Society, a group of teetotalers who came together to form their own friendly society. Um, and there used to be many Druids Friendly Societies which was people coming together, again, through a form of um, <clears throat> common interest. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. I, I'd, lo I'd love to buy a policy from a Druids-friendly society. <laughs> I think that would be great. Uh, <laughs> and, and you mentioned there that there was a link between the friendly societies and sort of the early trade union movement. And, and kind of the stuff that I've read about it in, in preparation 
Um, it shows that actually friendly societies were extraordinarily progressive as well. So um, right from an early stage, there were friendly societies for women. So in 1788, Faith Gray and Catherine Cap founded the York Female Friendly Society, um, which was used to assist the running of, of schools for girls. And in 1796, the, the, the Wisbeach Female Friendly Society was started. So well, what can you tell us about uh, tell us about them? Because that seems a, a remarkable thing to exist kind of back in that time. And, and that's one of the real traits of the Friendly Society sector, the fact that um, there are no barriers um, other than profession or common interest. So um, it was quite evident to uh, people in the 18th and 19th century that where you were seeing um, people with a group of common interests coming together, that that should cover every walk of life. And, and as you say, you know, today we can look back and say they were somewhat enlightened. And... Uh, in their heyday, I mean, how many were there? By the sounds of it, there, there must have hundreds were there in the UK, or do we have any indication of how many there were? Yes, the um, the history books tell us that uh, just before the uh, the end of the nineteenth century, there was a, a friendly society in virtually every town, every street, uh, every community across the country, um, and the best estimates that I've seen are that. Probably around 1900, there were around 25,000 friendly societies in existence. Wow. I mean, that, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? So it, it was a form of welfare state before the welfare state and had nothing to do with the state, but it was basically people organising themselves in a way which provided the, the protections that would subsequently be provided by the welfare state. Exactly. In fact, um, the sector was so progressive and so well-respected that when the government first introduced national insurance in 1902, they turned to the friendly society sector to administer the scheme and collect the contributions. So in every walk of society, friendly societies were operating and seemed to be a trusted way of delivering welfare-type benefits in the way that we recognise them today, and healthcare benefits long before the NHS came into operation. And how did friendly societies evolve during the 20th century? Because you, you said then that there were sort of 25,000 at the turn of the century, um, but there certainly aren't that many friendly societies in existence now. So kind of how did they evolve during the 20th century? And I guess, how did they respond to the creation of the welfare state kind of immediately after the Second World War? Well, that was the key, actually. Um, first half of the 20th century saw the Friendly Society remove, movement remain very strong. And then in 1948, when the NHS and the welfare state were created, the core rationale for most friendly societies dropped away. So on the one hand, um, the introduction of the NHS and welfare state um, led to the disappearance of thousands upon thousands of friendly societies um, and caused those that were left to refocus their attention on areas that weren't covered by the state, or at least not so well. Um, and today, there are only around 25 friendly societies active in financial services and around 200 in total, including those that offer 
um, benefits to customers outside of financial services. And you know, going back to pre-war, when there was all these 25,000, do you know how many members there were in total? And the, do we have it? I mean, what percentage of the, 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 the UK population was a member of a friendly society? Well, I don't have accurate figures, but I'm assuming it's somewhere in the region of about 150%. In other words, um, many people were a member of more than one friendly society um, because they um, they would be a member according to the work that they did, but also perhaps on a local community basis as well. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for people to have a range of different friendly society memberships at that time. It fascinates me that obviously friendly societies were a sort of a, a, a ground-up community organisation, kind of which, which drew people together. And then you have the, the welfare state, which is effectively top-down, and sort of dismantling the the, the community aspect of it. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm genuinely not making a political point. It's just an ob- observation that kind of that the welfare state, which kind of is there to support people, in many ways at the same time as providing one level of support, removes another level of support. Yeah, and I think it points to the resilience of the sector that having been at that low ebb in 1948 and the years afterwards where their complete raison d'etre had disappeared, but so many of them reinvented themselves. And what we see today is a very small number of friendly societies, um, but ones who are serving still... 6 million customers and who are now financially resilient and offering really innovative products and experiences for their their customers and members. So could you explain to us what role friendly societies play in the UK in 2023? Uh, You've already said that there are 6 million customers, which I suspect would um, surprise a lot of people. But what, what, what niche do friendly societies currently fill and kind of what do they offer, perhaps, that other forms of insurance and other types of insurance company are unable to provide? It's probably worth stating that, of course, 6 million policyholders doesn't measure up to a significant market share. In fact, the, the friendly society sector in the UK um, will, um, will deliver much less than 1% of the, the total insurance premiums across the UK. Um, but we are still prominent in particular areas. And those 6 million policyholders will be made up significantly of people who are paying typically very small premiums. So the focus of the sector is on uh, people with limited financial capacity, um, limited income to be able to invest for the longer term. And the products, therefore, tend to be focused on um, low-cost products um, with a wide range of benefits that help to support people who otherwise are are on limited means. Um, So take, for example, um, a very unique form of income protection. So income protection is usually bought um, by companies to support employees with quite a long vesting period to cover perhaps three to six months where the um, the business is supporting 
their employee. Um, but a Holloway income protection policy typically pays out on the first day of illness. And that means it's particularly attractive to blue-collar workers, um, people that work in factories who may not have income protection benefits from their employer, uh, and also the self-employed who would realise that if they're not working, they're not earning, and therefore income protection is really important to them, but impossible to buy from a mainstream insurance company. And we've also found in the investment world that when uh, the government introduced the Child Trust Fund around about 15 years ago, it wasn't the big insurance companies that offered that product, it was friendly societies. And today, around about 60% of all child trust funds are held by friendly societies. I mean, the, the whole concept of fairly small premium payments over a regular amount of time into a community-based mutual insurer is, is, is something which actually is being talked about a lot, in, you know, is being described as micro-insurance in the rest of the world and uh, as a way of trying to fill the protection gap, the, the gap between people who need insurance and who actually have insurance. Um, and it seems to me as though that the, the, the friendly societies were an early form of, of micro-insurance and to, to what extent do you think that like, friendly societies could actually provide a template for community-based insurance in you know, the developing developing countries and in, in communities which don't currently have access to uh, kind of you know, big corporate insurance? We, we work with an international trade body sister called IGMIF who supports the broader interests of the mutual insurance cooperative insurance sectors worldwide. They have a big focus on micro-insurance, particularly in places like Africa and South America. Uh, and there is massive demand for those kind of products in, uh, in those kind of countries, um, drawn from people who don't have access to insurance otherwise. Whether they use the word or words friendly society um, as opposed to mutual insurance is probably neither here nor there. Um, the, the concept of being owned by members and working in the best interests of those members is something which I think all communities can perceive. Um, and as one person said to me a few years ago, you know, friendly societies um, were the earliest form of social media business. So long before Facebook came along, if people wanted to get together um, to form areas of common interest and to talk to people with similar interests, they would go to the local friendly society and um, today they might resort to Facebook or Twitter. Um, but hopefully there's still space for friendly societies to continue to offer a support in the future. Well, it sounds as though it's, it's quite possible that, you know, because of the way in which they can be adapted for developing economies, actually it may well be that there's going to be a, a, another wave of, of interest in, in friendly societies or mutual insurance or micro-insurance, call it what you will. But actually we, we might we might see in, in the next kind of couple of decades, we might see in the increased use of that sort of community-based, mutual-based insurance. We can certainly hope so. 
Um, we haven't talked about demutualization and the effects of that that's ravaged on the UK um, mutual insurance sector. Um, but it's certainly true that in other parts of the world, um, friendly societies and mutual insurers are much better protected and the legislation recognizes the value of those organizations and finds a way for them to prosper rather than anticipating that businesses are all run with a uh, singular focus on making lots of money for shareholders. And I I can't finish uh, this episode without a reference to what must be the most wonderfully named insurance provider in the entire world, the Grand United Order of Oddfellows Friendly Society, which was founded over 200 years ago and provides a small amount of cover if you fall ill or die. So I must admit, I had never, I had never known that odd fellows were effectively odd jobmen, were were the, those people who didn't have a a specific profession. So, kind of, you know, th- tell us something interesting about the Grand Union Order of Odd Fellows Friendly Society. Well, they're one of the smallest friendly societies in the UK today, and and much of their work is given over to supporting good causes. Um, on their website, they talk about campaigns that they ran on on breast cancer support in 2022 and a wide range of benevolent benefits that they offer to their members. And I hope they continue to prosper because it's organisations like that who might be described as as quirky uh, or unusual, um, who um, are certainly not a relic of the 19th century but who are offering something distinctive and valuable to members as well in the 21st century. And I, and I hope they continue to do that for a long time to come. And, and it seems appropriate to end this episode with, with a quotation that is, is on the Odd Fellows website, is on their, on their main page. And it, it's this, the quotation is this, uh, Friendship is the bread of life. It is essential to our well-being. We could not survive without it. And ever since the beginning of time, we have been extending the hand of friendship to each other. In very primitive communities, having the help of others in a crisis is a matter of survival. However, even in today's world, where it seems as if we could survive without ever talking to another human being, friendship is important. Friendship is a prerequisite to sanity. We are social human beings and we need friends to survive. Amen to that, say I. And to conclude, Martin... Do, do you want to finish just by explaining why, in your opinion, friendly societies have been so successful for over 200 years and why they will survive into the future? In a nutshell, um, there is a need for the friendly society sector, for businesses that um, are delivering benefits, um, not to shareholders, but to customers who are focused on serving the underserved in community, um, people that have limited financial reserves, um, poor financial resilience, and who are really therefore um, at risk in society. Um, And friendly societies work every day to support their members, not just those in the contract, but the little things that make a difference if you're in a difficult position, whether that's um, support for your mental health, or just simply to pay the school uniform when um, all the kids go back to school. You suddenly find they've 
shot up another two or three inches over the summer. That's the kind of things that friendly societies do, um, alongside having some really admirable people within the sector with some very bold visions for how the sector can grow bigger. Uh, but it will always come down to supporting individuals and making sure that we make a difference in the community. Thank you, Martin. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.